This episode of the Getting Smart Podcast is part of our new Pathways campaign. What is something you used to think that you've changed your mind about? It's time for us to do that with all things learning. Previous Getting Smart campaigns have laid the groundwork of networks, place, purpose, and innovation. Our latest effort, the new Pathways campaign, will serve as a catalyst for unbundling education to allow for new learning models that are sustained by support and guidance and embedded in scalable systems. In partnership with ASA, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Stand Together, and the Walton Foundation, the new Pathways campaign will question education status quo and propose new methods of giving students a chance to experience success in what's next. Find out more at gettingsmart.com backslash new pathways. Priscilla, why do science fairs matter? Science fairs matter because they inspire the future. And uh, when you see a student, you know, most people see a, you know, just a regular kid sitting there. And as a science teacher, I see a future cure to cancer, a future, uh, you know, solution to ocean pollution, uh, a future solution to all the different uh, problems that we have, you know, in our world and on earth. And so they matter because by doing so, you inspire the, the problem solvers of the future. Basically, you're touching the future. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderark, and we're talking about one of my favorite topics today. That's science fairs and STEM uh, deep dives. We have three extraordinary guests uh, to help us on that journey. A little bit of background. Um, two years ago, we spoke with Maya Ejmira. She's the CEO of uh, Society for Science. And here in the United States, they're the big champions of science fairs. They are the host for uh, two important uh, competitions. They're both sponsored by Regeneron. Um, the first one is the International Science and Engineering Fair. And the second one is the Regeneron uh, Science uh, Talent Search. Um, so we'll, you'll hear us talk a little bit about both of those competitions today. You're, we're going to talk to uh, two young women that have done quite well in those competitions. They include Anika Puri. Anika is a recent graduate of Horace Greeley High School in Chappaqua, and she's an incoming freshman at MIT. That's awesome, Anika. Hi. Hello. And you're joining us from uh, the Czech Republic. Yes, I am currently in the Czech Republic. I forgot to ask you, what are you doing there? Um, we're actually just on a vacation right now, kind of exploring the history of Prague. And yeah. That's super awesome. When does MIT start? Um, actually, right as soon as we return, I'm moving in the next day. So orientation starts then, yeah. <laughs> we're also joined by Lalitia. Uh, she is a, a student at Columbia University. And... Um, Participated both in the Regeneron uh, Science Talent Search as well as the, the International Science and Engineering Fair. Um, Lalitia, uh, are you, where are you today? Are you back in um, Cincinnati? Yeah, I'm back in Cincinnati. I was in New York for most of the summer uh, interning, but I'm back home for a couple of weeks. That's awesome. I found out that you are... Um, you're a violinist as well as a science genius. I am. Which came first, the violin or science? 
I would argue both go hand in hand just in terms of their approaches to creativity and things like that. I was always really interested in music and science at the same time. So they're kind of two different limbs of the same person. That's awesome. Did did your mom or dad support both your interest in science and your interest in music? Yeah, they've both been incredibly supportive of that entire process that I've gone through. I think the violin and its creative approaches really pushed my innovation and kind of techniques in my STEM research as well. Are, have you started at Columbia or does that start like next week? So Columbia, I move in actually in early September. We start pretty late, so we end kind of late as well. And, and you're going into your second year there? Mm-hmm. And you had a pretty good first year in, in bioscience? Yeah, so I'm majoring in biomedical engineering, and I'm actually minoring in political science. I'm really interested at the intersection of STEM and public policy. All right, we got we to come back and, and um, dive into that topic. Um, Anika, you studied elephants. Um, how, did, how did you find out that elephant poaching was a problem? And then how in the world did you dream up this uh, machine learning video capture solution to, uh, to, to try to reduce the amount of poaching? Yeah, so I was actually visiting India with my family, I think in the summer of 2018. And we were visiting just like a, a market in Bombay. And there was just rows of ivory jewelry, ivory statues. And um, I was quite surprised because I was, I, I was a little naive where I thought, you know, you know, poaching is illegal. How come it really is still such a big issue? And so that really caused me to think about, you know, you know if it is still such, still such a big issue, you know, what is currently happening in national parks? And so we actually have a research program in my school, and that really gave me the opportunity to sort of like look deeper into, you know, what are the current solutions? And that's really when I started realizing that, you know, the current solutions either include, you know, doing it, this work manually, like looking through a video, trying to find these little, little poachers on the screen, which as you can imagine, very error prone. Or recent research actually has worked to automate it a little bit where they're utilizing the shape of the object. But because drones have to fly at such high altitudes, those kind of animals or elephants are coming as like little, little dots. So you can imagine identifying an animal solely based off of its shape can be quite difficult. And so that's when I started thinking about, you know, what are some other characteristics that we could be using? And I was just watching videos on videos of like elephants and humans. And I started noticing, you know, their movement patterns are quite different. And I utilized that, you know, we could potentially use this disparity in order to actually increase the accuracy of detecting poachers. So, yeah, I guess that was kind of where it all began. Did, I, I'm curious where your introduction to AI started. Did you, did you take the, like the computer science principles course and learn a little bit about machine learning in, or where was it? I think my journey with computer science started with like, you know, scratch and like, you know, doing little computer science blocks. And I think that was really when I started getting really interested in like, I guess the world of computer science. And actually in the summer of my ninth grade, I was fortunate to be selected for the Stanford AI Lab summer program. And I think that was really where I was introduced to, you know, this entire new world, artificial intelligence. And I learned a lot more. Mm-hmm. Is that the AI for all program? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's awesome. Did you, and you go to a summer program? 
And where, where was it in California or? It was at Stanford. It was 30 girls and it was just like, a kind of looking like I found a new community of just like, you know, 30 other girls who were just as passionate about, you know, learning more about artificial intelligence and, you know, learning, you know, just even the basics of like coding and learning about like, you know, what is artificial intelligence? Is it, you know, I think we all come up with this, like, you know, I guess initial thought of, oh, it's going to take over the world, but, you know, really what is it? How does it work? And, you know, how can we learn how to? You know. I, I'm curious, um, what adults supported your your deep dive in this project? Did did the did the idea start in school or out of school? And were, were any teachers at school supportive of your exploration? Oh yeah, I would definitely say I have a huge support system, both in school, out of school, and in school we have a science research program in which um, my teacher, Dr. Papernik, has been a huge support. She's always willing to, you know, provide feedback. She's taught us so much about, you know, just like how to present, how to, you know, read these research articles where you know, you're coming into 10th grade. It's like, you know, these articles can be a little bit intimidating. So she really teaches you how to kind of read through these articles and um, essentially how to, she helps you along the research journey. And I think out of school as well, my parents and um, my sister have been a huge support system um, for me and, you know, always supporting me along the journey, even along the challenges. Uh, so. Lalitia, uh, I think you graduated from the uh, Mason High, is that right? We're, we're a fan of the, the Mason schools. Um, you must have some great science teachers there. Is, is that... Part of where, where your your interest in science was cultivated? Yeah, so Mason is kind of a traditional public high school, so we actually didn't have a research program um, when I first started as a freshman. Um, so I was actually one of the people who was able to get science fair kind of running and started at my high school, which was really exciting. We started off with just a handful of kids my freshman year, and it grew to like we sent over 30 um, to 40 kids to states by my senior year and we're still continually growing so that's something that I'm really proud of uh, and so part of that because I didn't have access to a traditional research program I also relied more on other assets to kind of get me through my research and, um, and actually help me progress with my project as well. Lolita did you have both faculty at, at Mason High and people in the community that were supportive of this effort? Yeah, for sure. So I'm actually currently working with the Greater Cincinnati Waterworks to get my work implemented for initial real world testing. Um, it's basically my device, just to give a little hint of it, is a method to detect microbial contaminants in water through AI processing. And so it's basically this device that you can put directly into water pipes to hopefully uh, mitigate the spread of contaminants through an entire community's water supply. Given your leadership on science fairs, you, you must have done several different deep dives. Could you tell us about one or two projects that you did in high school? Yeah, so the one that I focused on primarily was this method uh, called NARID, which is a method to detect microbial contamination in water through AI analysis. So it's basically this device, and it takes microscopic images of water using a DIY camera that I made, runs it through AI processing to determine if any contaminants are present, and then can notify local authorities if any contaminants are present. So the goal of this is to kind of ensure that these contaminants don't spread through the entire water supply, and hopefully we're able to catch them early on enough so people don't face the adverse health effects as well. 
Earlier you spoke about the intersection of science and policy, but I'm struck that both of you constructed solutions to gnarly problems that required science, technology, and, and policy. They're really in this triangle uh, of the three. Is that fair? And is, it sounds like that's a, an area of interest for you going forward. Yeah, it definitely is. I'm a big believer in the interdisciplinary. So I think sometimes we try and construct these little like boxes to put everything in. So whether that's science or technology or any, um, you know, policy, law, but all these things are really, really intersected and really integrated. For example, in my efforts um, to reduce the water crisis, I have also had to look to things like educating people about this uh you know, crisis in the first place, also promoting my own research, also working to see if I can get policy efforts put into place to have access to clean water in the first place. And I think that they are, like you mentioned, a triangle where they are all intersected and we really need to focus in on building that intersection instead of breaking it down. Is is anybody at Columbia supportive of your uh, interest in more interdisciplinary studies? Yeah, uh, so Columbia is known for our core curriculum, and part of what we're doing at the core is we're really pushed to focus in on lots of different aspects of the humanities as well as science. For example, I'm in the engineering school, but last semester I took a class on music humanities, and actually every engineer is required to take either art humanities or music humanities. Like, we cannot graduate without that. We're also required to take up so many other aspects of the core curriculum, whether that's things like literature studies, um, other deep dives into music, whatever it requires. And that's, I think, one of the most unique things about Columbia and how it actually works out. Uh, I'm curious, have you started thinking about an advanced degree? And I'm, a, I'm afraid you might have to make a, a, a frustrating choice about pathway, but uh, are you leaning towards a, a, an advanced engineering degree or a public policy degree or a computer science degree? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm still kind of deciding what path forward is the best uh, for that kind of avenue. I think that I would really like to be able to get a master's or PhD that focuses in on this intersection of STEM and policy. And I think particularly higher level education would be a lot more receptive to it as well. Priscilla, um, thank you for teaching. I know this is the beginning of your 16th year at Granbury, which is just outside of Fort Worth, um, where did your interest in science education come from? And did, did you have any opportunities in high school to do any science deep dives yourself? Well, uh, my first science fair experience was in fifth grade for, uh, you know, just my school science fair. And, um, you know, I'm the first American born person in my family you know, my, my parents didn't know how to help me. So when I come home and I say, I need to do a science fair project, my parents who understood nothing about it, you know, they're like, well, we don't know what to do. And so I went to my teacher and I said, you know, we don't have anything to do this at home. And so she, she took the time. It was very simple. I just did a sand clock, which wasn't even correct because I had no concept of, of, what it was exactly, but my teacher was able to provide the materials for me. And, and that was very powerful to me because it taught me that, you know, just because my parents couldn't help me, I had my teacher there to support me. I didn't win any prizes, 
But that kind of sparked an interest in science with me. And then I went on to sixth grade and I had an amazing science teacher that just, you know, exposed me to all kinds of things. And it just kind of grew through the years. Unfortunately, uh, I grew up in a little town in South Texas named Rio Grande City. We didn't have all these robust science programs. And so, but I knew I loved science. And so I decided to go to for college at the University of Texas in San Antonio. And there I was able to experience what research was. And I was able to participate in all kinds of robust programs that the university offered. But I realized, you know what, I'm at a disadvantage because I don't know how to do really much of anything. And but I did learn. And so that's where I started thinking, maybe, you know, I, my, I wanted to be a, a neurosurgeon. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, I love I need to take this and I need to give other students the kind of experiences that I didn't get. And so that's where it started. It, it was a long path, uh, but I didn't really zero on into science first until I started teaching at La Jolla, which is down south as well, in Lorenzo de Zavala Middle School. And we started, we weren't winning anything. I was just doing it because I was told by my principal to do it. And then once we were able by somehow a miracle, we had one kid that qualified to state and then we ended up getting disqualified because of my fault, because I wasn't informed and I felt so bad. I said, you know what? I can't do this. I can't, I need to be informed. And that kind of started me on this path of becoming more informed about how do I support students? What are the rules? You know, I, and I started looking at programs, some of the best programs in the nation. First, I started in Texas. And then when I, I tried to get help from them and they did not want to share, you know, their ideas and their techniques of doing everything, I went wider. And through that, you know, path of self-discovery, I came upon the Society for Science, which ended up you know, opening up that web to all kinds of teachers that were willing to take me under their wing and help me and help my students. And uh, I ended up moving up here to North Texas, and they were trying to uh, close down the science research program in my my current district. And I said, "No, you know, I'm here, and I want to I want to get it. I, I want to bring it back." And so I've been in the process for about three to four years now of bringing it back. And this year we're going to expand it into the middle school. So that's been a little, in a little nutshell, how I ended up in this. What do you think young people get out of science fairs and more broadly, you know, self-directed research projects, sort of STEM deep dives? Priscilla, what, what do you think young people get out of that? First of all, they get self-confidence. Um, I traditionally have been working with students that you don't usually see in these kind of competitions. And when I approach them and say, hey, you know, you want to do a science research project? And they kind of look at me like me, you know, you want me? And so at first they're kind of apprehensive because they don't exactly know what they're doing. But once they find that topic, you know, whether it be, you know, elephant poaching or clean water and they, they get that little spark, they are unstoppable. And so, first of all, self-confidence. And you open a kid's opportunities to things that they never even realize that they have access to. And, I mean, many of my kids, they really haven't, you know, won, like, you know, the science talent search or they haven't gone really to ISEF. 
and they don't win major prizes. But the fact that these kids who are, many of them are labeled as at-risk student, students, end up not only graduating from high school, but also going to college and pursuing a STEM degree, it's already a major win for them. I want to ask our, our recent um, science fair participants that same question. Anika, what, what, what did you get out of it? And what, what do you think other young people get out of the supported opportunity to do a real science deep dive? Um, I think, first of all, I think the first thing you get out of it is a community because once you enter this area of like research, it's like you get exposed to this entire like new world of kids of like who are all just as passionate about, you know, exploring this like science or exploring these like, you know, you know, this little like cool little, you know, science thing. And it's like, it's like almost like you're not alone anymore. And you're sort of learning along with all these other kids and you're all learning together. And I think kind of adding on um, as well as like you definitely get a lot of self-confidence out of it. And you also learn just like, you know, basic things of like, you know, how do you present to someone? How do you kind of explain your idea to someone? How do you kind of talk to kind of scientists and experts in the field and have like, you know, talking to kind of, you know, professionals and like, you know, explaining your idea to them. So I think definitely it gives you a lot of like self-confidence, presentation skills. And I think the most important is just like a community as like, you know, a kid exploring science. Lalitia, what, what would you add to that? What did you get out of it? What do you see other young people benefit? Yeah, I completely back up everything else that's already been said, especially about community. I think that's one of the biggest things that I got from Science Fair, especially coming from a non-traditional research program. Um, I always share this story. So one of the girls, I was an STS finalist in 2021. Um, one of the girls there, uh, her and I were actually both winners at the Junior Science and Humanities Symposium a couple years earlier. Uh, we never met. We're in the same photo. We're standing right next to each other during awards never meet until STS. And then both of us have that photo on our social media. And we're like, are we both in this photo? Um, and it's just that kind of like little community overlaps that you'll constantly see, you know, at school, I run into STS finalists and ISF finalists, and already there's this sense of community and of camaraderie that you're just able to gain from these people. Um, Another really important thing, I think, is just the ability to present your ideas, whether or not you continue on with the specific project that you work in for Science Fair, being able to, like, you know, think of ideas and questions at the spot, being able to reply to these judges, kind of like probing intrusive questions. Um, it's hard. And it's kind of a skill that if, the younger you develop it, the better off you're going to be as you move forward in your collegiate career and your professional career as well. Yeah. Lalitia, I... Um... I'm also a, a fan of, you, you alluded to this, but I'm a fan of the, the fact that science fairs might be the only time in high school where you're invited to select a, a problem. But really, it's an opportunity in problem finding or what the Keen Network would call opportunity, um, opportunity definition, right? Finding and framing a problem, which, which is really core to the entrepreneurial mindset. I, I, I want, I'd love to have you think back to how you picked the water quality project that you did. What what spoke to you? What made that important to you and your community uh, enough to warrant a deep dive? Yeah. So I think first thing is we have problems everywhere, right? And it's just a matter of 
literally listing out those problems, no matter how big or small they might be, and then developing solutions to them. Um, you know, there's so many companies, for example, that make hair, make hair care products or beauty products. And those solutions might not be the biggest things in the world, but, you know, they might be, oh, this, if you use this hair care product, it'll make your hair less frizzy, things like that. So there are problems all around us all the time. Um, for me, I focused in on the water crisis, also on a family trip to India. Um, and there, like, people don't have access to clean water. It's really common to boil water before drinking it, before bathing in it. Like, it's just a part of life that people accept. Uh, my family and I, we would boil our water before drinking it, all that kind of stuff. But my younger sister and I actually both fell ill from drinking contaminated water. And when I returned back home, I found that this isn't an issue just centered around the small community where I come from in India. It's an issue that's global and it affects billions of people across the world. And so I started thinking, how could I use the skills that I have to kind of solve this problem. I had had some previous experience in coding and machine learning, so I wanted to see if I could apply that to the water crisis. And of course, imaging is one of the easiest ways to start thinking about AI. So from there, it just was, you know, one step after another that just led me down this cascade yeah. to my final solution. Priscilla, is it challenging for young people to find and pick and frame a problem? Is, is that pretty common? And is this an important emerging skill set? It is very difficult for students to think in that way because if you look at traditional educational settings, what especially, you know, in science, which just absolutely blows my mind and it's like they're doing worksheets, they're doing multiple choice questions. And I, I ask students to say, you know, how many times in real life are you like, okay, can I A, you know, or can I B, you know, Never give you Never. give you a small problem with the right answer, right? Once you left school, you will in science you will never see one of those again. Never, I said. So, you know, with having the research experience that I had uh, in my undergraduate degree, I you know, and then I became a teacher. I said, wait a minute, how are we going to encourage a student to go into STEM if we're not even doing real STEM? And that just makes no sense to me. And so a lot of times the way, you know, I, I usually sit down with students and I say, okay, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, what are you passionate about? And believe it or not, uh, I, I've even recruited athletes and they've done projects that are based on that sport that they're very interested in. And it's just about, it's hard at first, but kind of just talking to the student and just get tapping into what passions they have, what things are important to them. And if you zone in on those things, then those ideas just start flowing and then you'll have the issue of, okay, well then what idea are we going to pursue? Anika, I love how uh, for both of you, th this has led to, to difference making for, for you to really try to continue to uh, extend your impact. And you, you both have started um, impact organizations. Anika, what, what is Mozart? Yeah, so Mozart was a nonprofit organization I had founded in actually right after the summer of ninth grade when I had attended Stanford AI for All, because that was really when, you know, I was first exposed to, you know, artificial intelligence, what is it? And I think initially I like my enthusiasm for it was kind of in naive faith of like, you know, you know, oh my god, it has so many possibilities for social good. And and when I started kind of learning more and more about it, I started realizing that, you know, it could have negative implications on you know, the very people it was designed to help. And it's because, you know, the natural human biases that, you know, 
are in our society are kind of being baked into the data. And because artificial intelligence is you know, such a um, technology that it revolves heavily around data, it has the, I guess, kind of possibility of reinforcing, you know, some of the worst aspects of our society. And that's really what made me realize how important and critical it is that, you know, women, people of color, and really um, kind of all people are represented at the forefront of technology. And I think one of the first things I was thinking about is that, you know, how can we kind of have this kind of new kind of almost intimidating technology? How can we help and, you know, help it reach other people. And for me, I was a harpist. And so I've always felt, you know, art, music, it's a very universal technology. No matter what language you speak, you can kind of connect through music. And so that was kind of what got me thinking of no matter what age you're at, no matter, you know, where you come from, you can kind of connect through music and kind of learn about these kind of upcoming technologies through music. And that's really kind of how I founded Bozart. And Never since then, I've been kind of running mo- um, workshops. And I remember my first workshop was like, you know, with elementary school kids. And I was like, you know, they're all running all over the place. And now I was actually running a workshop with like college students. And so it's like, it's been amazing, an amazing journey. And I think it's also helped me realize just, you know, it's been affecting one student who comes to your workshop. They're kind of going on and, you know, you know, reaching out to like, maybe five other students. And so even if you start out small, you're kind of creating a community. And um, no matter how small the change you're creating, it can have an impact. That's beautiful. uh, Anika, are you bringing your harp to MIT? Um, I'm not sure it will fit in the dorm, but I believe they do have an orchestra. So yeah. You've been been driving a station wagon for a few years if if you play the harp, right? Oh yeah, I'm I'm actually only like five feet tall. So when I first started playing, it was like the same height as me, and then now it's like like two feet taller than me. So it, like, all the concerts, it's like you're lugging it around on like you know you those boxes like that you have to carry. You carry it on the same thing. Yeah, so. my sister played the harp, so I was the harp transport dude, and she was stuck driving a driving a station wagon for most of her life. Um, Lalitia, um, you, earlier you mentioned the, um, your project. Is it NERAD? NERAD. Yeah, so the NERAD project was inspired by my research, and it's essentially an organization that aims to raise awareness about the water crisis through research, outreach, and public policy efforts. So I'm working on implementing my NERAD research, which is this microbial contamination detection system. I'm also working on outreach efforts. So I've worked with hundreds of students, both online and in person, to get them aware about STEM and aware about the water crisis and to really help them get engaged in science. Like Priscilla mentioned, sometimes in school, the way that science is taught to kids is not very engaging. And it's sort of like, oh, it's a reading from a textbook constantly. But science is so much more engaging, so much more hands-on and fun than just that, which is part of what our organization tries to do. And lastly, we're also working on public policy efforts to help ensure that access to clean water is something that happens at the legislative level as well, which I've mentioned a couple times through my intersection of STEM and policy. Another thing that I'm really excited about is I'm actually on the board of Engineers Without Borders at Columbia, and we have a water project that we're working on in Morocco, so we're hoping to integrate Nared into our systems there as well. Priscilla, wow. Right? Um, 
I, 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 I almost don't have to ask this question, but why, why should more young people have the kind of experiences that Anika and Lalitya have had in high school? Everybody should have these experiences, right? Absolutely. And uh, really, it just opens up all the opportunities available to them. I know me being in Texas, you know, football is king and it's all about I need to get a sports scholarship. And my way of thinking is, why are we not opening these STEM opportunities to students so that, you know, what's the likelihood of somebody getting a football scholarship and going to the NFL? You know, very, very small. And I always tell my kids, okay, that it's it's fine that you have that dream, but you know what? I'm going to give you a really strong plan B that eventually is going to be your plan A. And so it's very important that we give these opportunities to students as early as possible so that they can start seeing themselves in a STEM career. And, and that's exactly what this kind of experience does for them. It just, it, it helps them see, hey, you know, I could actually do this one day. And just to kind of, you know, talk about, uh, it's very important that as science teachers and STEM teachers, we are showing our students the most current, um, the most current technology that we have available. And both of these young ladies have mentioned artificial intelligence. And this year, it is my goal to do some type of artificial intelligence lessons in my biology classroom, because it's important that kids know about these things. That's awesome. Thank you for doing that. And uh, Anika, um, the MIT Media Lab has been a, a leader in this space. They created a AI plus ethics curriculum and they're encouraging middle schools to introduce uh, um, AI machine learning and ethics and invite middle school students into that dialogue. So we love that idea of starting in middle school. Um, I, I just love the fact that both of you have gone deep in biology, technology and policy and crafted real world solutions to, to real world problems and that you continue uh, to try to advance impact in the world. Um, it's so great to hear. Thank you for being with us. Um, Pr Priscilla, where can people learn more about the Regeneron um, Science Talent Search and, uh, and, and uh, local fairs? So they can go to the societyforscience.org website and there they can find all the information on that. Also for teachers, the Society for Science also has many outreach programs, such as the Advocate Program, where, is where I got a lot of my start with this. So they can find information about that as well. That's awesome. And Lalitia, if they don't have a science fair, what do you do? You start Just one, right? start one. <laughs> That's so awesome that you, you didn't have a science fair, so you said, let's do this. Let's start one. Mm -hmm. Start where you are, do what you can. Exactly. Hey, thanks so much to, uh, for all three of you for being with us. Um, what cool experiences you've had. You're really terrific advocates for, uh, for science and, uh, and for young women. Priscilla, thanks for teaching. We really appreciate your teacher leadership. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks to our producer, Mason Pasha, and the whole Getting Smart team for making this possible. Until next week, keep learning, keep leading, and keep innovating for equity.